socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Welcome, everyone, to episode 93 of You Don't Have to Yell, and a happy Trece de Mayo to you all. It is your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and if you've listened to this show before, you know my strong belief that 2020 will be one of the most historically significant and transformational decades in our lifetime. And the goal of this podcast is to take a positive part in that transformation. Now, that is why I was very excited to discover this week's guest. Mauro Guillen is a sociologist and political economist who currently teaches at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where he's regarded as one of their most innovative thinkers. And this is a school with no shortage of innovative thinkers, folks. Now, his new book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything, describes exactly what the title says it does. It is a fascinating read, and during our conversation, we discuss how America's policy on immigration, China, and the very nature of work and ownership are going to change in the next eight and a half-ish years. And as a little plus, there's also a convenient plug for one of my favorite causes, eating your leftovers. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. I, I have to ask before we jump into the meat of it, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, you were your tenure at uh, the University of Pennsylvania has only been rivaled by Benjamin Franklin. Is that correct? Yes, I always joke about that. Uh, I've been yeah. at Penn for 25 years now, which is a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully they give you a statue too. You know, I think that's uh, I think that's worthy of it. I doubt that's going to happen. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll I'll start the campaign. Um, the other thing I'd like to note is that before every episode, I always like to do as much research as I can on the guests. And in in the case of Morrow, um, I had come across his book over the weekend and ordered it on Amazon. Shot Morrow an email, and quite literally, I think before I could even check out, he had already replied, and we had already booked this. So you also bear the distinction of being faster than Jeff Bezos. So you can put that on your bio if you'd like. <laughs> I love responding to email quickly. I don't write long emails, but you I don't. respond you, very, very quickly. You have a knack for brevity and uh, and expedience. So I'm I'm a big fan. Um, now getting into to what brought us together. Originally, I had found your work doing some research on immigration. I'd like to dig into that a little bit and kind of talk about some of the demographic changes that are going to make our approach to that change or, or make, make changes necessary. But before we get into that, a lot of your book seems to be based on the concept of lateral thinking. Can you just explain lateral thinking to the audience? Yeah, lateral thinking is all about connecting the dots. That is to say, instead of taking each trend in isolation of the others, uh, what I encourage people to do in the book is to think about how those trends, economic, demographic, and technological trends come together to produce very unanticipated, very uh, surprising outcomes in the world. Um, so once again, it's all about taking into consideration not just uh, one thing at a time, but rather think about how, how they are laterally connected. Because in so doing, I think uh, you will discover 
not only major threats, I think, on the horizon, but also very big opportunities. One of those trends that that you cited in your book and that actually brought me to your book was the uh, aging population in the United States. Do you view immigration as a potential solution to some of the issues we're having with an aging population? So immigration is, of course, a highly politicized issue these days. But I think it's really important to think about what kinds of things we can accomplish if we have a rational immigration policy. And one of the most important benefits from immigration is the rebalancing of the age structure of the population. The American population, as well as the European one, is aging very quickly because we're not having a lot of babies. And therefore, if we bring in immigrants who are willing to work in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, that will help us rebalance the age structure, which would be really, really important in, make, in terms of making sure that we have a social security system that can work. You mentioned the highly politicized nature of immigration. One of the things I've noticed is that when you look at demographics globally, the parts of the world with the largest share of young people, of the type of people we're going to need, are in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, which are, are two regions that I would argue uh, American immigration policy has been less than friendly to, uh, let's say, over the past few years. Do you feel we, we may have hurt ourselves in a way uh, with recent policies, or is this something we can correct? So Africa and Latin America, from the point of view of the United States, are perhaps right now uh, among the most important origins of immigrants, especially, of course, Latin America and within Latin America, Central America. Now, in many of those countries, remember that the reason why people are migrating is because there are no jobs or because there's a political crisis or there's violence and drug-related crime and so on and so forth. So I think uh, the United States, like any other country, has a right to essentially decide who can get in. Uh, and uh, I think that's why it makes a lot of sense to have an immigration policy that tries to essentially get all of the benefits from it, both for the immigrants and for the United States as a recipient country. And I think uh, there's a lot uh, to gain um, here if uh, we can find a way of essentially um, establishing agreements with uh, all of those countries in Latin America and in Africa that are major origins of uh, immigrants into the United States and come up with a system that um, hopefully eliminates uh, the human drama and uh, all of the uh, tragic uh, events that every now and then happen at their border. Uh, I think it's really important after so many years to engage in immigration reform and to think about immigration as something that can be beneficial to both the host country and the home country of the immigrant. Yeah. Are there any specific reforms you'd, you'd recommend? Well, number one at the top of everyone's list, I think, uh, is to make sure that immigrants right now in the United States or in other parts of the world who are paperless, uh, they don't have legal status, but they've been living in the country for many, many years. Some of them, in fact, have been, as you know, uh, in the country since uh, they were very, very young, even infants. So I think that should be the top priority, to essentially bring all of those people into the legal mainstream, right, by granting them uh, the so-called path to citizenship. But I think the other really important thing is to think about where is the American economy going to be five years from now, 10 years from now? What type of labor are we going to need? And look, when you analyze that carefully, and there's a lot of studies on this, what is very clear is that we need both low-skilled and high-skilled immigrants. Just to give you an idea here, 
30%, between 30 and 35% of the doctors and the nurses and the specialized technicians in the American healthcare system were born outside of the United States. So look, I don't know how we're going to deal with future pandemics. I don't know how we're going to deal with a rapidly aging population that is going to require healthcare without immigration. But let's not forget, at the low end in terms of skills, we also need immigration because we produce agricultural um, products. We have uh, so many industries that require uh, some measure, some quantity of unskilled labor. So we also need um, unskilled uh, immigrants to come to the country. So in other words, there's so many benefits, especially from the point of view of the economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm the grandchild of immigrants, and so I got to see the whole uh, the the generational uh, shift in terms of of wealth and earning power. And you know, the other thing I'll bring up for the folks watching and the folks listening is, uh, I believe it's episode number two of this podcast. I actually interviewed someone who was brought here from Colombia when he was eight and lived here uh, illegally until he was just before he was eighteen. And the thing he told me was he's currently works at a software company, uh, makes a, and, and not to say we don't want to be purely economic. I mean, there are, I, I think, uh, humanitarian reasons as well. We want to look at immigration, but from an economic standpoint, um, worked at a technology company, makes a, a fair amount of money, obviously contributes a lot in terms of uh, economic output. Um, if he weren't mainstreamed, if he weren't granted citizenship, as he was back in high school, you know, he had told me he'd probably be working manual labor. And of course, there's no problem with that. The only issue is that you're you're minimizing the potential output of this person. And so I think that there's, again, just wanted to offer a little editorial there. Um, now, there's, you know, obviously a lot of economic angst, I think, amongst some circles in America about immigration. Another area of economic angst as well is specifically China and China rising as, as a military, but also as an economic rival. And, you know, as I, as I was digging into your work, you know, one of the things you mentioned is how Asia's middle class is going to rival uh, that of the EU or of the United States. And um, I think in a lot of cases, the, the dialogue has really been focused here in, in terms of a negative, in terms of us losing something. But in my mind, uh, and, and I'd love your thoughts on this, it seems like there is an opportunity here for us as well. Well, uh, the rise of China is just a fact of life. I mean, this is a big country that over the last uh, 30 or 40 years has essentially grown its economy very, very quickly. So it is a fact now that China already is the second biggest economy in the world, the second biggest consumer market. And whether we like it or not, we have to accept that reality in which uh, China is going to be a big player. We may not like some aspects of it, but uh, what I think uh, should be um, the best uh, posture for the United States is to bring China to the table, talk about the issues. We have issues over uh, security uh, in Taiwan and elsewhere. We have issues over intellectual property protections, as you know, over fair trade. So what we need to do is to engage China. We cannot ignore them. And uh, obviously, we cannot isolate China from the rest of the world. Uh, we have uh, major economies in the area that are friends of ours, uh, countries that uh, are aligned with us, such as Japan or South Korea or India, Australia. So we're not alone in that region. What I think is really important for the United States when thinking about China is not to see it necessarily as a threat, but rather as something that we, a country that we need to monitor, uh, that we need to be careful about, 
Um, but by all means, let's engage with them and let's try to come to a solution to the problems, uh, bilateral problems that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, if I'm, if I'm going to, I'm going to engage in a little lateral thinking here and, and I'll take your course on a pass fail. Um, but it seems to me that, you know, the, the, the current American model is, is really based on, I, I think, and and is is based in large part on maybe exporting our values as well. And in the case of China, we may have to accept the fact that they're going they're going to be a very large, powerful country that's going to do some things we don't like, and figure out where you know where we can agree. Um, because to your oh, point, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But look, there's a fundamental difference between the United States and China, which is that we have a lifestyle, we have a culture that we can export, and the entire world loves our culture. Uh, China doesn't have that. Uh, China doesn't have a, you know, anything I think uh, ideological that they can export, um, and so I think here we have the upper hand. We have the high moral ground. I think what we need to do is just to, in addition to seizing the high moral ground, we also need to protect our economic interests. It's as simple as that. I've often thought about even Hollywood as 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 a tool of American soft power in a way, and uh, it seems that's kind of what you're saying. Am I am I right there? Uh, absolutely correct. Uh, you're right on target there. One of the areas that I think causes a lot of stress in our economy or a lot of worry is the role of automation and the role of AI and the fact that a lot of jobs that exist today are most likely going to be done by robots not too far into the future or by machines. Do you see an equal opportunity there as well? Well, not really, because okay. um, automation, like um, all of these major you know, technological uh, breakthroughs and uh, processes of adoption that we've seen over the last uh, few decades essentially benefits certain people, but then hurts other people. And that uh, this is just the way things are whenever, you know, you have a, a major transformation. And of course, when you have automation in manufacturing or now also in the service sector, you will inevitably have workers who lose their jobs uh, and it's not easy for them to find another job, maybe because they're already in their 50s. And so it's a little bit too late for them, they think, uh, to find another occupation or another profession. So technological change, uh, automation in particular, can make a lot of people unhappy and angry. And that's why I think, you know, both in Europe and the United States, uh, we've seen over the last uh, few years this phenomenon of uh, some of those people who feel forgotten, uh, essentially voting for political uh, politically extreme options in elections. So I think uh, we need to be more proactive about this. You know, you can anticipate how many companies are going to be investing in new robotics or in new um, artificial intelligence-based systems, and therefore how many jobs are going to be lost and exactly where. I think we need to be much better at planning, and we need to anticipate the social dislocation that automation can bring about. Yeah. And so what's the solution there? Is it education? Is it, you know, continuing, continued upskilling of workers? Like what, what are some things we can do to help address that? Yeah. So the, the most targeted intervention is, as you're saying, education, retraining, uh, providing those workers with uh, other opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps even asking companies that uh, automate to pay a tax so that we can fund those programs. You see, you and I pay taxes in the United States, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the robots don't pay taxes. I think that's very unfair. I think the robots should also be paying taxes. Taxes that then we could use not to build roads like we do with the gasoline tax, but rather to help those workers who are displaced by technological change. 
And then more broadly, then I think uh, perhaps the moment has come, both in Europe and the United States, for um, us to have a, a national debate about a guaranteed minimum income. Because uh, we are in a consumer-oriented economy. But if people lose their jobs, if wages stagnate, if there's not enough purchasing power, then eventually that's going to hurt the economy and that's going to hurt everybody. Uh, so I think uh, I'm not necessarily arguing in favor of a universal, not a universal, but rather a guaranteed minimum income. Um, but I think uh, we should at least have the debate about the advantages and the disadvantages of that. I wanted to take a short break from this episode to remind you why you're here and to give you one way you can take action to affect positive change in America. Now, you're listening to You Don't Have to Yell because you are part of the exhausted majority who find themselves in between both major parties and are looking for change. Either that or you have made a terrible mistake and are halfway through an episode you thought would be about something else. Either way, you're here. I appreciate your support. And again, wanted to pass along one simple way you can help. Now, my conversation with Moro reinforces one thing. America is going to need to adapt in order to meet the challenges of the coming decade. And we need a government that's responsive to those changes to make that happen. And if you haven't figured it out yet, today's government isn't. Now, it's our current system of elections that allows the two parties to serve their partisan base, as opposed to seeking where the majority of voters lie. This is a base that values obstruction over compromise. It is a base that values hyperbole over reconciliation. And electoral reform can change this dynamic. Now, if you've listened to this show before, you know my belief that ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and feasible way to open up the two parties to real competition and make them run for the true majority of voters, as opposed to running for their base and a certain number of people who they just don't happen to turn off ahead of the election. Now, you can learn more on the subject by visiting rankthevote.us or just email me at heydan, that's H-E-Y-D-A-N, just like it sounds, at ydhty.com. I hope you'll join in the fight. Now, back to the episode. One of the things that that your your book got me thinking about, which is, it, it seems to me as I and there's a few there's another topic I want to get to that touches on this in a second, but it does seem to me as like if we have to revisit capitalism in this country in a way, and I'm a capitalist, so but but it does feel as if we really need to revisit this model where um, where survival is linked to time and income or time and labor, uh, and that there, there has to be some way to provide a, a floor for those folks uh, who are going to be left out if, we have, if, we're, if we're going to continue to progress, if we're going to continue to have a dynamic economy that unfortunately includes uh, people being put out of work. Um, the, the, the one subject you talk about that I think touches on that as well is, is, is the sharing economy. And these apps that almost change the, the the nature of ownership in a way. And can could you talk a little bit about that? Because I just I found that part really fascinating. Yeah. So the sharing economy comes in many you know shapes and forms. 
Uh, we have, uh, for example, ride hailing, right? I mean, you can go out and uh, get an Uber or a Lyft. Yeah. Or you can uh, find a place to stay that is not a hotel and so on and so forth. Um, so this type of, um, of uh, sharing economy has essentially made ownership not a requirement for gaining access to certain assets, such as a car or a home. And so, especially among young people, uh, the idea of ownership these days, uh, I think, has lost in terms of its appeal. Remember, the American dream was to, to own a home, to own a car, to start a family. Uh, but now it seems that some of those values are not widely shared by uh, the younger generations. Um, but the sharing economy is much more than that. It's also, for example, the gig economy. That is to say that companies share workers. So you're a worker, you have certain skills, but instead of having a full-time job at a company, what you do is you go to one of these platforms, digital platforms, and then you look for things to do and they pay you, right? And in other words, you're going to be employed, so to speak, by several companies, not just by one. And the gig economy, I think, is something that has been vilified because obviously it can also mean that some people don't have healthcare, they don't have good benefits and so on and so forth. But for people who want flexibility, for people who don't want to work full time, it's actually a godsend, right? I mean, the, the, the gig economy, which is, again, one part of the sharing economy, I think is a, it's, a, it's a great innovation, uh, once again, assuming that only people who want to work part-time on a flexible schedule and all of that are the ones who go there, and then the others just get a full-time job with all of the benefits. Yeah, and, and, and kind of building on something you said earlier, too, um, I, I think in a way, if the government views its role as providing a floor for people to support them in the areas that the economy doesn't, um, in a lot of ways, that gig economy no longer becomes a, a four-letter word. You know, if you're working without health benefits or or retirement benefits, but the or for that matter, education benefits, but the government's providing those, um, I think that takes a little of that stress away. And um, you know, one other thing I'll throw out there is, you know, my son is can't drive due to a physical disability, and you know, it's been something my wife and I have talked about. And you know, the thing I've always thought is, you know, in another ten years, I'd, I'd imagine the nature of car ownership is going to change because mm -hmm. as you know, as autonomous vehicles hit the road. Absolutely. Already, right? Like, it, it seems to me like uh, I would rather subscribe to a car service than I would own a car and have to deal with the headache Correct. of maintenance and everything else. Because you see, uh, on average, Americans uh, who own a car only use the car about uh, five or 6% of the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's not a very, uh, it's not a very uh, reasonable thing to do to own your own car. And you're right. I mean, once we get to autonomous vehicles, I think um, that's going to be uh, really the moment at which uh, car ownership may, may decline big time here in the United States. I'm laughing because I think I've probably filled my tank up. You know, I could probably count on my fingers how many times I filled my tank up since the pandemic started. So, um, yeah, so interesting, interesting. Um, I, I have two more questions for you here. Um, one is on just our level of preparedness, which we've talked a little bit about before. You know. Out of all the trends you look at, which ones do you feel we're the least prepared for? Well, right now, I think um, the biggest challenge that we're facing is with cities. Mm -hmm. And it's true that the pandemic has reduced the attractiveness of living downtown. As you know, many families are moving further out in the age of remote work. Yeah. But you see, we have a big problem with cities. Uh, cities occupy only 1% of the land in the world. But they're home right now to about 60% of the population, and that's mm -hmm. growing. 
And um, cities account for 80% of the carbon emissions, 80%. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, I think we need to make cities more efficient, more energy efficient, mm-hmm. uh, less polluting. We need to make them more livable. Uh, we need to make them less wasteful. And in so doing, I think uh, we're going to be able to address the problem of climate change uh, because the problem of climate change essentially originates from the cities, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's where most of the problem lies. So I think that is perhaps the most urgent thing that we need to do is the most important trend that I think we need to pay attention to. Because once again, in spite of the pandemic, cities are growing because people in sub-Saharan Africa, people in South Asia, they want to move from the small village to the city because they feel that that's where the opportunities are. And it's probably mm-hmm. true. Yeah. Uh, so we cannot continue down this path to a point where we have 70, 80, 90% of the population in the world living in cities. In other words, occupying just 1% or 2% of the land. Um, we need to plan. We need to make cities uh, better places from the point of view of uh, climate change. Uh, because otherwise, I think uh, this is an issue that is going to make our lives really, really hard. It's going to, it's going to be really difficult to address this issue uh, if we don't tackle it now, let's say 10 or 20 years down the road. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you talk about the inefficiency of cities because I think in a lot of cases, you know, conventional wisdom would say, and it would say that, you know, urban living in some ways is more efficient. So an example here in Boston, uh, where I live, you know, we have a great public transportation system. Uh, you're generally, if you're living in the city, you're generally not driving because driving in the city is terrible. In addition to having a great public transportation system, you know, you're living in a smaller space, so you're not consuming uh, as much resources in terms of maybe heat or electricity. But what are what are some of the more wasteful aspects of cities maybe that I'm, I'm missing? Yeah, well, let me tell you a few piece of information here. But first of all, Boston is a wonderful city. I've lived there for four years. Oh, great. But, you know, city is a very small city. I mean, Boston yeah. is a very small city. Yeah. Uh, you know, a little bit more than a million people. And that's if you count everybody in the metropolitan area, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, right now in the world, we have 10 uh, mega cities with more than 20 million people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and by the year 2030, we're likely going to have 15 or 20 of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, All together, there are probably about 200 cities in the world that are bigger than Boston. And that's where the problem is. I'm not too concerned about Boston itself, because as you said, it's a city that has public transportation. It's a city where people uh, tend to be, you know, or behave in ways that are environmentally conscious and so on and Mm -hmm. so forth. But let me just give you another statistic here. On average, here in the United States, when people are driving their cars downtown, 30% of the time, they're looking for a parking space. Now, that doesn't make any sense to me, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we should be able to come up with smart parking systems with sensors. Um, maybe we can use an app on our phone telling us that's your closest parking spot, right? Or parking garage for that for that matter. And here's the cost and so on and so forth. But we haven't done it yet. And it really bothers me because mm-hmm. not only we're wasting time, but more importantly, we're polluting and we're emitting carbon right, into the atmosphere. I mean, mm-hmm. this is crazy. 30% of the time, that's a lot, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think uh, this is just one example among many. Uh, let me give you another one. Uh, 30% of the food that reaches cities gets wasted here in the United States, according to the yeah. U.S. Department of Agriculture. If I remember correctly, it's 31%, okay? It's around 30%. Well, uh, as you know, to produce food, to transport it, Um, you know, you need to use energy and therefore you're also polluting and you're emitting carbon. So in other words, 
I think also as consumers, we should be less wasteful. This, this whole thing, when you and I were growing up, that our parents would tell us, you have to finish what's on your plate. Mm-hmm. I think we have uh, forgotten about that. And now mm-hmm. we no longer finish what's on our plate. Yeah. We actually cook too much food. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we just throw it into the trash can. And that is one of the most uh, environmentally unfriendly things that we can do. I am going to save this clip and play it for my kids because I am an I am an absolute stickler for not ordering or buying anything else until we finish what's in the fridge. Exactly and right. they they hate it and they hate the leftovers, but kids, I've got a professor on my side now, so it's your move. Um Final question for you, and thank you for giving me that notch in my belt. I was, I was, I was not looking to, for you to resolve any family arguments, but since you're here, I'm, I'm happy to help with your domestic <laughs> troubles. Thank you, thank you. So, uh, last last question for you. You know, a lot of what I've, a lot of these discussions and a lot of the questions I've asked you have really been framed in the negative. They've been framed in the ways. Um, that uh, that might harm or 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 change our way of life negatively, but in in your your work, I see a lot of reason for hope too. And do you? I guess when you look at the future, do you share my optimism? Do you see? Do you see a, a bright future? Do you see a, uh, maybe a negative future, or is it just too early to tell? Oh no, I'm a realistic optimist. Okay. So look, uh, there's no shortage of problems here in the United States and around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, this past year has been a stark reminder of how many issues, open issues we have and uh, mm-hmm. how important it would be to start addressing them. Um, but look, in any kind of major transformation, such as the one that we're going through right now, as you said at the beginning, for the longest time, we haven't been in this situation with so many things uh, essentially shifting. I think um, there's also lots of opportunities that emerge, lots of opportunities for for entrepreneurs, for investors, for sure, for companies, but also for each of us to essentially think again about how we're getting things done, how we are approaching life. You see, I view this transformation and and the pandemic as well as a big reset button. So we are in a position in which we can push the reset button and think about how can we do things differently? How can we do things in a way that are better uh, for everyone? Um, you know, how can we reduce inequality in access to education and so many other things? So I'm really hopeful that we can use this crisis as a way to come up with a society that is better and uh, more, uh, you know, fairer to everyone. I think that that would be a really a very good outcome out of this tragedy, you know, that of course, has claimed more than half a million American lives, but uh, maybe we can make the most out of it in terms of, uh, you know, rethinking our future. Yeah. And to to wax poetically uh, at the end of this uh, conversation, you know, one of the statues, at least one of the statues I know of Ben Franklin uh, on the University of Pennsylvania is a young Ben Franklin as he was walking into Philadelphia for the first time. And I think if you look at the time where Benjamin Franklin lived, um, you could very well have viewed it as the end of the world. Um, but thankfully, due to the actions of, uh, of of certain people and due to the thinking of certain people, um, we laid the groundwork for this conversation right here. So I, I'd agree with you. I think I think we can definitely look at this as the opportunity to really adapt to change and really build something better on top of it. 
If you found this episode informative, please leave a kind review. And if you haven't subscribed already, I'd love to have you aboard. Just gently press that subscribe button on your device and you will get a piping hot episode of YDHTY every Thursday at 2 a.m. Eastern Time. Now that book, again, is 2030, how today's biggest trends will collide and reshape the future of everything. And it can be purchased on Amazon or wherever else you may buy your books. Now, a link to that book and other resources will be available on ydhty.com. Click episodes in the upper right-hand corner and you will be there. Now, the biggest takeaway from my conversation with Morrow, aside from having another reason to hammer my kids over not wasting food, is the fact that America will need to rely on soft power far more to meet the changes of the coming decade than they have since World War II. It seems like we as a country have gone a long time without having a problem we couldn't solve with an aircraft carrier. But with an aging population and a more powerful and assertive China, that streak might be over. And Morrow gave a nod to this during our conversation, but I think it's worth noting again, America's cultural significance is an asset that we failed to use in recent years. And Hollywood alone shapes the stories billions of people consume year after year, and a clear vision of what our values are and policies that live up to them would help make that far more powerful. And that requires what, everybody? A responsive American democracy that represents the will of the people, which leads us right back to electoral reform. See how that works? I thought you'd be amused. Music, courtesy of Quellertag. Advisor of editorial is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced by the easier to pronounce Big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.